we just say thank you to Bethany for all of her hard work and leading our kids so well? It was awesome. It was great. Um, man, it's good to be with you guys today. If you have a Bible, can you please open it up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's some people that can walk by with Bibles, and you can just slip your hand up, and they will gladly give you one. Uh, but we'll be in go- the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 2, in verse 1. Uh, this morning. I want to begin by talking to you about first impressions, though, first impressions. Um, First impressions are often thought to be pretty important. The first impression you make seems to be significant, or at least we want to make a good impression on people, right? I mean, who doesn't want to make a good impression? And some of us are really good at making first impressions, and uh, some of us are really bad at them, you know? And uh, yeah, that's great. when you're bad at them, you just kind of hope people give you a shot and stick with you, right? And then eventually they're going to see the redemption of who you are, you know? Like, you, you really are an amazing person. But uh, we don't like first impressions often because people judge us, right? You know, based upon them. We get frozen into time. This is who this person is, often based upon a first impression. Um, often... Uh, It's even said that leaders and the first impressions that leaders make, especially when they begin to lead in a new place, in a new people, the the impression they give immediately, whether it's through some things they say or some behaviors they have, are giving an impression of what they're going to do and what their leadership is going to be like. I'm just curious uh, in your experience, with all that said, uh, what what was your first impression of Jesus? What was, what was your first impression of Jesus? Uh, maybe you met a Christian and that person gave you a really bad first impression of Jesus, whether it was through something they did to you that was horrific or horrible, and uh, I'm glad you're here, that you, you, you haven't given up yet and you're here to maybe hear about the true Jesus. Or, or maybe you met a Christian and there was a great first impression about maybe who Jesus is. Or maybe you read your Bible And you read a story about Jesus, something he did or something he said, or you read another part of the Bible about something that God was doing and what God did and said, and and you've had a great first impression of what Jesus is and who Jesus is all about. I'm just curious this morning, and what we're going to see is is really the answer to the question of what were people's first impression of Jesus as he entered into time and as he entered into space? Uh, What was the first impression that Jesus gave? As he came, because actually, if you think about it, Christmas is all about first impressions. It's all about beginnings. It's about the author of creation entering in the story of life that he has authored, and the first impressions that he makes are really telling to us. Uh, That's what we see in our text today, and I think the danger of our passage that we're looking at, some of the kids were just quoting these things that we're going to be reading today. But I think the danger of a passage like ours is it's become probably very familiar to you. A lot of things that I'm going to read, you're going to say, yes, I already know that. Or you've, you've sung it in songs, you've been singing in songs, or you've been shopping and you hear it played over the speakers, you know, and people don't even realize what it is that we're singing as they're shopping about or something like that. You've been hearing this all December, or these words maybe are so familiar to you that as I'm reading them, if you were to close your eyes, you could almost by memory say what's going to come next. See, things that are familiar to us are familiar for a reason often. It's because they're so important. It's because they're so great. 
And our familiarity with them makes it sort of lose the awe of what we're actually experiencing. It's like if you were to ever go and see the Grand Canyon. Have you guys ever seen the Grand Canyon before? The Grand Canyon, the first time you ever see it, it's, 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 it's awesome. It's like, uh, you know, you got to catch your breath. Like, it's literally uh, breathtaking, like in the literal sense of the word. It's just so huge. It doesn't feel real. You feel so small. And that's the way it is. That's, that's true. It is grand. It is a Grand Canyon, right? But let's just say you became a park ranger and you worked at the Grand Canyon every single day. You might look out over the Grand Canyon and objectively over time say, yes, that's awesome. But it might have lost that sense of awe over time because of why? The familiarity that you have with the Grand Canyon. But nothing's changed about the Grand Canyon. What's changed is my familiarity with it. I say all that to say we should press in this morning because the Bible is like this. I want to invite you to sort of sit forward a bit, and, and we're going to peek into the Grand Canyon again, if you will, this incredible story. And if you do lean in and we prayerfully ask God to open our eyes and our heart to his word, uh, what will happen is you will begin to wonder again, because that's what the people in our text are actually doing. They're wondering. What we see this morning is that the long-awaited Messiah has come, and the first impression that he makes is staggering, to say the least. Okay? Here, here's how the narrative is structured. We see really three scenes in our, in our narrative. We have these three different scenes, and each scene is really building on each other. And in verses 1 through 7, we're going to see how the Messiah came. In verses 8 through 15, we see what he came to do. And in verses 16 to 21, we see what our response should be. So let's, uh, let's, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 7. Father, this morning, as we go to your word, I, I do pray, God, that you would, by the power of your spirit, just illuminate this text to us once again, that we would see you in this text and what you've done, and may we see that with fresh eyes. God, would you just peel back the layers of our familiarity often with a passage like this and let us to see the true wonder of what you've done for us. Uh, we ask that you'd speak to us now for the glory of Jesus here in our city, for his sake, in Christ's name, amen. So how the Messiah came, verse one, what does it say? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, what is really striking about these verses is how unstriking they are. You know, it's just really matter of fact. The way Luke tells this birth narrative of Jesus, there's no drama to it. It's just descriptive. It's just, well, this is what happened, and then they went here, and then they did this. You know, he writes it in a very historical kind of way, which pretty much falls in line with how he begins his gospel when he says, I've taken into account all these eyewitnesses and all these testimonies, and I've gathered all these things so I can impart them to you so that you would know who Jesus is. And so he basically, matter of fact, just says Jesus was born, right? It's very basic. But if we look closer, there's a lot more to this than that. I mean, just look in verses one through two. We open up here with Caesar Augustus, and he's issuing a mandate that, notice it, all the world should be registered. 
I mean, if you lived in this time and you went out on the streets and you polled people and you asked them, who is the most important person in the world? Everyone would say, Caesar Augustus, of course. Of course, Caesar Augustus. That's how they would have answered. So here, we begin the birth narrative of Jesus with a reference to the most powerful person in the world. And what's he doing? He's wanting to count up how many people he's ruling. Right? We begin with the greatest king in the world trying to put a number on how powerful he is. And then verses three through five, everyone is just admitted to go to their hometown and, and register there, and so they go. And Joseph, being of the line of David, King David, like a royal line, he returns to Bethlehem, which is referred to as the city of David to register his family. And if you read in places like 1 Samuel, you see that David was a shepherd boy out in the fields by Bethlehem, and, and so this is where King David was even from. But still, this seems like everyday kind of stuff doesn't it? Except there's a promise that we read in your Bibles that was given a long time ago that the Messiah would be from the town of Bethlehem. Hey, notice this in Micah uh, chapter 5 verse 2. It'll be on the screen there. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days." So when you read a place like Luke, it feels really like a nonchalant description, but it's, it's quite far from it. Because wrapped up in this move from Nazareth to Bethlehem is God fulfilling a promise that a king would come forth from Bethlehem, and his origin would be from long, long, long ago, and he would be of the lineage of David. And then in verses 6 through 7, Mary goes into labor, right? They're in Bethlehem. And then we discover, verse 7, that she gives birth to her son, and like a good mommy would, she wraps him up in a blanket. She lays him in a crib-like thing, but this isn't a normal fancy crib. This is a crib that animals eat out of. This is interesting. And if you were there, it might feel a bit appalling to our modern eyes, just be honest, right? I mean, we live in the day and age of disinfectant wipes, you know? Like, we disinfect everything, most of us. Or I remember the, my, our firstborn child, you know, the pacifier would fall on the ground even if it was just mopped or something. I'm, we're grabbing that pacifier and we're rinsing it off, you know. We're like, oh, we don't want this kid to get sick. And then you have two, three, four kids and then it falls into gross things. You're like, whatever, just put it back in. You know, it doesn't even matter anymore. <laughs> but your first child, you're very aware of this kind of stuff, you know. So I don't know. Don't, don't judge Mary, Okay. But this must have been all they had access to for whatever reason. Well, what's the reason for her son's bed? Well, you only get one clue, and it's wrapped up in the phrase, there was no place for them in the inn, which inn is not a reference to like a bed and breakfast or something. The word literally references a guest room, okay? There's no place in the guest room, which would make sense if Mary and Joseph are returning to a place where they have family, right, for them to be received by their family, that would make sense, especially if Joseph is of a royal line of sorts, you know, that would make sense for them to be received, you know, I mean, if, if you go home for Christmas to your family, you don't get kicked out, do you? So, so why? Well, much has been really made of this one verse. I mean, our entire nativity scene is created from this one verse, isn't it, you know? Uh, lots of depictions have been plays and movies have been made and conjured up, images of you know, angry motel owners that are like, there's no room here, you know, go on, you know, and we see all this kind of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, it's a really brief descriptive statement. But the whole birth narrative is, 
is, is pointing to something very simple in fact, actually. And it wants you to see one thing, and that's that this is not a very grand entrance. It's really striking. Think about it. We are seven verses in, and we're being shown two kings. Caesar, and now this child. Born from the womb of Mary, one is trying to quantify his powerful rule and reign, and the other is lying in a place of obscurity. If this son that's born here is a long-awaited and promised Messiah, if he's really the promised king, this arrival parade is falling pretty flat. I mean, who, who even knows about this at this point, right? Have you ever seen the famous Oscar-winning movie, Aladdin? You ever seen this before? Right? There's a famous scene. You know of it. Aladdin, he uses one of his wishes, Right? For the genie to make him a prince. So not even a king yet, a prince. Why? Because he wants to enter into the city and he wants to impress Princess Jasmine. He wants to make a good first impression, doesn't he? Right? And so what, is, what does the genie do? He, he does them all up, right? He, they're riding in on elephants. There's dancers. There's music. There's singing, right? It's grand. It is epic. It's epically cool. It's a bit over the top, to say the least now, isn't it? Aladdin, what's he doing? He's trying to make a big first impression because in his mind, in the genie's mind, and in every other person in humanity's mind, the bigger the parade, the more significant the person. Right? This is how we think. Well, Jesus isn't getting a Prince Ali sort of entrance now, is he? If the long-awaited and promised king has arrived and his lineage is from eternity past, shouldn't we expect something more like that? See, this passage might feel merely descriptive, but it's actually saying a lot, not only in the content of what it's saying, but also in the way that it's being said. I mean, if, just think about it. If you like reading biographies, you like reading biographies, I mean, the ones that mainly make it to print and the ones that are the most enjoyable to read are really the stories that are about people who start from obscurity. They begin with nothing, but then they rise to some sort of greatness, don't they? Like, we love these sort of stories, and this is really fulfilling the desire of all of us. We all begin, and we say, I want to become something. We want to rise into some sphere of greatness. So when you ask a kid, what do you want to be when they grow up? They don't just say, I want to be an artist. They say, a famous artist. You know, they say, not just a baseball player, a famous baseball player. That's the desire that we have, and we love underdog stories. We love watching people rise from the streets and becoming a famous somebody. This is interesting to us. And even in the Christian faith, we love looking at people that have maybe come from a background where they were really hurting, where they were really oppressed, or maybe they really screwed up some things in their life. But then they met Jesus, and Jesus transformed their life, and they experienced the risen Christ. And then you see the transformation that takes place, and you look at those people, and what do you say? You say, man, do you remember what that person was like? Look at how far they've come. Like this is, this is really uh, mind-boggling to us. This is wonderful to us. We wonder at the rise of people that go from obscurity to greatness, those that have the so-called deck stacked against them, and yet they still make a huge impact in the world. But is that the contrast here? Not at all. It's the exact opposite. Because the emphasis here is not on some rise that Jesus is going to go from, from obscurity to greatness. The emphasis here is on the descent from his greatness into obscurity. 
into poverty. What a beginning to a biography. This is how the Messiah has come. Well, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Let's read verses 8 through 15. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Okay, wow, here we go. The drama's picking up, okay? Uh, Verses 8 through 9, we have shepherds out in the fields in the middle of the night, just doing what shepherds do. It seems like a pretty normal night. Then a single angel appears to them, and we're told that God's glory, which is a reference to the presence of God, shone all around them. They knew what was happening here. And then they said, this is pretty cool. This is awesome. This doesn't happen every day. No, that's not what they say. Quite naturally, they were filled with what our kids just sang about, right? Not with fear, but great fear. Great fear. But don't miss the connection here. We have shepherds in the field at night. They are surrounded by darkness. And then the sunrise doesn't dawn, but the glory of God lights the place up. Do you remember the passage we looked at last week? Luke chapter 1, verses 78 through 79. You can look there. Zechariah prophesied what? That because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Now, Zechariah is talking about something much bigger than literal darkness and sunlight. He's talking about salvation, and he's equating the experience of light dawning when you're sitting in darkness to the experience of salvation. But apparently, it only took three months from the beginnings of that prophecy to come true, because not only are the shepherds experiencing this in a physical way, they're sitting in darkness, the glory of God lights the place up, but we see in the angel's announcement that the symbolic use of light dawning in their darkness was coming true as well, right? We see the angel gospeling them. That's what he's doing. What does he say? Don't fear. Instead, consider this. He says, look up here, look at this, behold, Right? Consider this. I bring you gospel. I bring you good news. And the good news that I'm bringing to you is not just for you, it's for all the people. It's for everybody. So if you could dream up a person in this world, just go nuts with it, from the person you love the most to the person you hate the most or the person you're just imagining, it's for them too. All the people. There's not a single person that this gospel doesn't touch, okay? The word good news or gospel, though, is a really important word because in the ancient world, this was really only used when messengers would be sent out to announce that there was a new government in place. 
That's what the word gospel means. People go out and give a gospel, that the war was over and there was a new government in power. And that's exactly what the angel is announcing here. There's a new government coming into power. Who's the king? Well, the king is who? The Messiah. He's the long-awaited Christ. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's here. But then the first title that he's given to is not just Messiah. He's given the title of what? Savior. He's a savior. He's going to deliver and rescue his people. This, again, stands up in stark contrast to Caesar Augustus because Caesar was also called the savior of the world. That was what he was referred to as. And notice again that he issues a decree in verse 1 for all the world to be registered. So he sees the scope of his rule as the entire world. And this announcement of this new government is for all the people, right? We could see this even, this inscription that was written in 9 B.C., be on the screen here behind me. This is what it said about Caesar, okay? It says, whereas the providence, which is a reference just to like a generic deity, which has guided our whole existence and which has shown such care and liberality has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving to us Augustus Caesar, whom it filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind and who being sent to us and to our descendants as a savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. That's the emperor was repeatedly called the savior of the world, the Caesar Augustus, right? And we've even seen here that it was attributed to him that through his rule, he brought life to the peak of perfection. Wow. Think this was true? This wasn't marketing or something? If you live in a world where people worship one person and they think their actions as bringing peace and salvation to the world, how would the announcement of a new government be received? We might have a war on our hands. Unless, unless, this new king, this new government that the angel is announcing is about a whole different kind of saving and ruling. We have in verses 12 through 14, what happens next? The shepherds are given a sign to go and see so that they can identify who the king is and what's the sign. It's probably going to be pretty impressive, right? It's probably going to be awesome. I mean, an glory, glory of God just lit up the place. It's going to be awesome, right? What's the sign? Well, it's going to be a baby lying in that really gross manger. It's kind of disappointing, isn't it? What kind of king is this? Well, before they can get their minds around it with all this confusion, suddenly there appears with this singular angel a whole multitude, which the word multitude means try to count it up. You won't be able to, right? Just, just good luck trying to count it. Right? That's what multitude means, okay? A whole multitude of heavenly hosts are bursting out in praise to God, okay? Now, remember, Caesar he can go and he can try to count up his people. He can do that. But this king has an uncountable number of heavenly hosts. Try to register this. And what are they saying? Well, they're saying what you see written on all the Christmas stuff that you buy in the Hallmark store or whatever it is, right? Glory to God in the highest. This is a reference to heaven. Think about this. We sang this Gloria in excelsis Deo, right? Glory in the highest, right? This is a reference to heaven. Essentially, think about this. This birth 
is bringing glory to God in heaven. Now, this is not a location that you can get to by spacecraft or something, okay? This is not like we need to fund NASA some more and one day we can get there, right? That's not at all where this place is. This is a reference to the place that God lives in unapproachable light. This is a place that is outside of, of creation, okay? But the invisible and unapproachable God in heaven, okay, has made himself visible in the birth of this child. And now, and now, glory is shining in heaven in a way that glory has never shined before. In the highest place. But there's also another location, and that's where we live, on earth, right? Peace among those with whom God is pleased. Your translation might say, upon whom God's favor, his grace rests. Right? Peace to you. But this peace that's being announced to the shepherds is not a lack of war kind of peace. It's not the life at the peak of perfection kind of peace. It's peace between what? God and man. That's the peace that's being announced to you. This peace is a reconciling kind of peace. It's for those who receive this newborn child. How do we know this? Because it's only for those with whom God is pleased, upon who his favor rests. So notice here that God is deciding. He's deciding. He's deciding to bring peace into whom he's bringing this peace to. So that means it's not for those who think they deserve it. And it's not for those who think they can earn it. You just simply receive it. It's just the kindness of God. That's all it is. It's not an obligation. That's where this peace is coming from. Do you see, if you peek into the Grand Canyon this morning, and the birth narrative that we see, you'll wonder at it, but what are you wondering at? I agree with J.I. Packer when he says in the Knowing God, we should wonder at the incarnation of Jesus, not simply as a marvel of nature, but rather as a wonder of grace. I mean, just consider this story. Consider the elements. We have the highest of high coming to the lowest of low and in the lowest way possible. Like, think about that. Is this a natural, this is a, isn't this like a natural foreshadowing to not only who this Savior is, but how he's going to save you? We see in this worshipful praise and this really humble sign the truth of the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which says what? For you know the grace, right? The favor of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about heaven, glory, deity kind of things here. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. That's manger talk. That's cross talk. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. As in other words, the author of life has written himself into the story. That's what's happening here. And we see some authors in real life, right, do that, like from Clive Cussler to Stephen King or in movies, most famously people like M. Night Shyamalan, like they appear in their movies. You know, they write themselves 
into the stories, but here we're being told that the author of life has written himself into the story, and in writing himself into the story, we see that he is not the creator of sin. He is not the creator of suffering, but he is willing to come and identify himself with it in order to change it. The Messiah has come to rule and to save, but the way he saves is by becoming poor. That's not Caesar. His material poverty, though, here is symbolic of the poverty that he will experience later in his life. This is a true first impression. What you see with Jesus is what you get. This is foreshadowing the end of his life. When we see him hanging on a cross and we see that he will not save us by conquering nations like Caesar, but by leaving eternal riches and becoming utterly poor on the cross as he endured the debt of our sin against God who made us and who you and I turned from and through our bankruptcy, guys, he offers himself as a ransom so that through his poverty, you might become rich. You see, it's, it's in this first impression that we catch a glimpse of not only who this king is, but how he's going to save. Just imagine this morning, if I, if I came over to your house later today, I'm just dropping something off, and we, we were like, hey, how's it going? You know, that kind of thing, here's the thing, whatever it is, you know, I'm bearding you. And uh, you're like, hey, you got a, an hour or so, I'm just, I'm digging you know, some trenches in the backyard, it's, you know, pretty muddy, but hey, I just, I could really use some help. And let's just say that I'm already covered in mud and dirt, right? What do you think my response will be if I have the time? Sure, yeah, totally. I'm like, yeah, I'm already muddy, I'm already dirty, let's do this thing, okay? Let's just say I show up at your house today, same thing happens, same question you ask me, but I'm all in a nice suit, Right? I'm going on some anniversary date, Portland City Grill. I'm like, I have, I have the time. I have a couple hours, but nonetheless, I'm in my suit. I'm all done up. I'm ready to go. What do you think my response is going to be, even if I love you? Right? What do you think it's going to be? Oh, man, I wish I could. Right? But, uh, man, uh, I, can, I can call around, you know? I can maybe find somebody else to come and help you, you know? Or if I have some disposable income, hey, I'll just... I'll hire it out. I'll pay for somebody to come. That's how much. I love you. Like, I want to help you do this thing, right? You see, I don't want to get dirty. If the perception of myself is I'm clean, I don't want to get dirty, I'm going to be less likely to want to help you now, won't I? This is, I think, how most people want to save, right? They don't want to save from a, they want to save from a distance. That's how people like Caesar save, if you can even call it that. But Jesus saves by getting dirty. Yet he was the, he, he's wearing the nicest suit in the room. Like you could ever own. That's what he's wearing. He saved not by standing at a distance, but by drawing near, by setting aside his power and glory. And so, you guys, this means that it's precisely those who know that they're in the muddy pit this morning. Those that are in the trenches. Those that feel dirty and desire to be clean that Jesus has come to save. He's arrived. And in the way that he has arrived, this contrast is striking. He is bringing good news of great joy for all the people. And it's beginning with the most basic, very forgettable shepherds. He's coming for all the people. That means you. That means you. 
You might might think of God highly. The phrase, glory to God in the highest, that sits comfortably with you. That makes sense to you. But the distance of travel from the highest to the lowest is too hard for you to accept. Your thoughts go to, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm too dirty. I'm, I'm a very forgettable person. I make really bad first impressions. And I can't accept that. God's too holy. He's too high. He can't possibly go that low. Not, not for me. But guys, we, we look at one another this morning and, and we say, peek into the Grand Canyon. That's what we say to each other. We say, look into the feeding bed at Bethlehem. See your Savior. The highest of the high to the lowest of the low. Verse 15, the angels leave. The shepherds say, let's go check it out. We see their response. We see other people's response. And in this, I think we see what our response should be. What does it say? Verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. God named him, right? And only parents name their kids. I can't name your kid. Only you can. God named Jesus before she was even conceived. So what happens here? They go with quick abandon, find the sign, just as they thought. Verse 17, they saw Jesus in the manger bed. What do they do? Do they return home and say, let's keep this on the down low. Let's keep this to ourselves, you know? Not at all. They do something they aren't even told to do. They start gospeling everybody, right? They're evangelizing. They're sharing this good news. That's what they do, and that's the most natural response, I think, to this cataclysmic event. Go and tell. Our kids just belting this kind of stuff out, right? The most natural thing to do because of the content of the message is to share it because it's good news for who? All the people. Verse 18, what do the people who hear it do? What do they do in 18? They wonder. They peeked into the Grand Canyon. Verse 20, what do the shepherds do after they see the sign in the manger and they share the gospel with everybody? They return to their flocks and what are they doing? They're praising God for all they've seen. They're glorifying God. They're bursting forth with praise. They turn their eyes to the weighty glory of God and they're filled with great joy, which was the promise in the announcement, right? They're experiencing it. And what does Mary do? Verse 19. We're given a very interesting statement here, but Mary... Notice the butt. She has a different reaction. What is she doing? She's treasuring these things up. She's pondering them in her heart. Is she like sad or something? Not at all. She's treasuring this. She's meditating. Let's ponder on her pondering. This isn't the only time that Mary ponders at her child. Luke later in this chapter, in verse 51, says, 
And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And in that context, she's treasuring up how Jesus stayed back at the temple when he was a mere boy. And he's teaching all these religious leaders about the word of God. Is Mary just letting this all sink in? Is she just drinking in some moments here, you know? And Maybe, but that feels a bit insufficient, honestly, to what she's doing. Just think about it. Mary has the most intimate and unusual relationship with Jesus that will be incomparable to the rest of the world. And all the mothers in the world know this, right? There is an intimacy that's experienced, so I'm told, when your child grows inside of you. She's had nine months to feel the kicks, to rub the belly, to pray the prayers. She just went through anguishing childbirth, and she's now holding her child, right? Think of the intimacy of this. She's going to nurse Jesus, the Savior of the world. She's going to change his diapers. All right, we can go on. No one has this kind of relationship with Jesus. She knows Jesus, but she doesn't know Jesus. It's as if she takes these things and like any other treasure, she's putting them on display in her heart, isn't she? She's she's placing them, she's admiring them, she's dusting them off, she's turning them over, she's looking at them, right? I mean, I I have a treasure chest from when I was a kid. You know, it's in my closet. Don't break in. It's it's awesome in there. The stuff's in there. But nonetheless, there's like signed baseballs and basketball cards and magazines, like really important things, you know? But when I was a kid, those things weren't in my treasure chest. They were displayed in my room. They were my treasure, right? I admired them. I took care of them. I, I would look at them. I would think about them and the experiences that came with them. Like, that's how we treasure stuff. I just recently saw an interview with the great actress, um, Julia... Or Julie Andrews, you know, the original Mary Poppins, right? Mary Poppins was her very first movie, and it was her entrance into Hollywood, and she won an Oscar for Best Actress for that role. And she she had no idea what this Oscar meant, and so she says in the interview that she went home and she just put it in her attic. And it wasn't until years later that she realized what that award meant and how valuable that, that award was. She just thought it was given to her as like a welcome to Hollywood kind of thing, you know? And amazing, but guess what happened when she found out how valuable this thing was and how rare it was to receive one of these, these great things for her career? She got it out of the attic. She dusted it off. She presented it. She treasured it, right? We get treasuring. And what Mary treasures and meditates on is her son, who he is. What will he do? Everyone is filled with joy and wonder, and she's treasuring. Mary's response I don't think it's better than the shepherd's response. It's just different. But both responses are the natural response that we have when we experience the gravity of this event. But if you start with treasuring, that'll lead you to the shepherd's response. This is the natural response to the arrival of our king. It's treasuring and sharing. You see, some of us might hear this story and we might lock it away in the attic every year until next Christmas And then we get it down like it's a decoration. But this event that we're looking at this morning, it's meant to live with us all year round. And when we consider this story, one huge thing stands out. This birth isn't just for me, right? Jesus is not my personal savior king. He saves me personally, but he's not my personal possession. 
I don't own him like a material treasure. He owns me, and he owns all of it. Christmas isn't just for me, it's for all the people. If I see that Jesus got in the mud with me in order to get me out and clean me up, that'll make me a very grateful person. But if I see that Jesus got in the mud of the world, that'll make me a worshipful person. This is the natural response to this birth. This is, how the, Christ, this is the Christmas spirit. Because the highest of the high came down to the lowest of the low. Uh, to have the, hem- the emperor arrive in the town that you lived with, that you lived in, was a great honor. It was cause for celebration. And when someone like Caesar would come to your town, they would mint coins, and that would also mark the beginning of a new era for those people. This new era that Jesus brings upon his first arrival, it won't be marked with coins. And it's not marked with material wealth, and it's not marked with a lack of suffering. But it's a new era that's marked with hope. And it's pointing our eyes to the day that he's coming again. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the backstory of the uh, carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. You know that carol, you probably sung it. It was written in the 1800s by a man named Charles Longfellow. Uh, He went through a lot in his life. To say the least, he had six kids. He would have fit in really well at GBC. And uh, he, though, was marked with a lot of suffering. He was a widower. He lost his wife. Uh, His oldest son went off to fight in the Civil War, and while he was fighting in the war, he got shot in the left shoulder, and it went straight through and out his right shoulder, and nicked his spine. His life was barely spared. But the son was left fighting. They were wondering if he would ever walk again. And this is the reality that this guy is sitting in on Christmas Day, 1863. He's sitting there surrounded by grief. He's surrounded by war. The war's not over. The experience of losing a spouse, now almost a son. We could count up other things. And he hears the church bells ringing on that Christmas morning and he pens these words that you've probably sung before. He says, I heard the bells on Christmas day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So you might feel like Longfellow this morning. You kind of wish that it were up to you, Jesus would have come and he would have acted more like Caesar and cleaned out the joint. Problem is he would have cleaned out me. So that's not why he came. He didn't come to fix my grief. He came to enter into it and to save me from my deepest grief, my sin. And so the good news comes this morning, but it actually points you to the second advent, and that's where Longfellow looks as he ends his song. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead. 
nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. See, Longfellow felt the lowest, but that is exactly the people and places that God dons his glory upon. The true king has come, and his presence marked a new era for the world, and that means that today it can mark a new era in your life as well. He is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's no longer in a crib. He's no longer in a manger. He's no longer on a cross. He's no more in a borrowed tomb. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he's coming again. The highest has come to the lowest in order to raise you up to the highest with him. It's a pretty sweet first impression. Let's all rise to our feet as we go into our time of response through communion and singing and pray with me. Lord God, this morning, I pray that we would wonder at the distance you traveled to meet us where we are, that you might bring us to where you are. You are the God who's made low to raise us up, and I pray, God, that that news would really, really sit with us as good news this morning. May we respond to you in the most appropriate ways we should, God, bursting forth with praise, spreading the news to everybody else, pondering it in my heart. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, we